Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. There's a gritty new show this season on Weasel, where the law is the drama, and the drama is the law. What the hell did you go to law school for? I haven't changed at all! I was always overcompetitive and shallow! I have a disabled brother I pretend doesn't exist! I only married you because you've got great guns. Law. Catch it Thursdays on Weasel before it catches you. They say beauty is skin deep, but what about the energy? I have inflicted a lot of pain in my time, and some of it was really beautiful. For those who really know what it takes to be beautiful, Hair Gruber Spa. Do what I say. After running residential facilities in Germany, Switzerland, and then Brazil for many years, the renowned German beautician, scientist, and disciplinarian has come to San Andreas. At Herr Gruber Spa, you'll be taken to a whole new level. Have you not read the book? Strength, good, weakness, bad, 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 bad. We won't pretend it doesn't hurt, but these days, beauty is worth fighting for. Oh, you want a potato. You are less than a potato. Less, less. Who needs dignity when you're thin? You'll never see people so skinny, happy, and undignified as when they leave our spa. Hair Gruber Spa. All right, squad, welcome back to another episode of the Halloween special of Anthology of Horror. Today we're going to be talking about curses in the graveyard. All graveyards and cemeteries are spooky, but sometimes they're also cursed. Too often, objects meant to be reverential memories to the dead morph into vectors of harm, misfortune, and even death for the living. The dead can be a jealous and vengeful lot. Today we're going to start with the Bjorkertorp Ruinstone. The Bjorkertorp Ruinstone in Sweden is one of the tallest runestones in the world, and judging by the ancient curse inscribed in an ancient language on its ancient flakes, it's not taking shit from anybody. The Nordic countries have their share of cursed ruinstones. For instance, the Glaven Doop Stone in Denmark threatens to turn anybody who disrespects the stone into a warlock, which alternately translates as an outcast. The Trigerveld Ruinstone, also in Denmark, and the Salaby Ruinstone in Sweden feature similar curses. But the curses engraved into these stones are gentle warnings compared to the dramatic curse that's carved into the Jorkertop Ruinstone. I don't understand why they put bees in front of everything. This particular runestone is located in the county of Blekind, on the southeast corner of Sweden, right on the coast of the Baltic Sea. It's an old burial ground in a forest full of tall, freestanding stones called menhirs. The site dates to the Iron Age, sometime in the 6th or 7th century. Some of these menhirs are arranged in circles. One of those circles is composed of three tall stones, so it's technically a triangle, one of which is the Jokertep runestone. You can tell which one because it bears Proto-Norse ruins from Proto-Vikings. Uh, Proto-Norse would evolve into Old Norse, which was the language of the Vikings. It's about 14 feet tall, almost a tree of stone, and it's shaped kind of like a large, upright base, with a long, thin neck and a bulbous bottom. 
On the back is a short phrase in ancient angular markings that have been weathered almost to invisibility, but which are legible thanks to the dutiful preservation which regularly applied red paint. I predict perdition. That phrase by itself may or may not be twistable into a curse depending on how you translate it and in what context it's said. But the stone's curse status is cemented by the message on the front, which goes into detail on the predicted perdition. It reads as such. I, master of the ruins, conceal here ruins of power. Incessantly plagued by maleficence, doomed to insidious death is he who breaks this monument. I prophesize destruction. Or something like that. It depends on the translator. Regardless, it's a pretty intense curse, and unlike other rune stones whose curses are tacked onto the end of a more benign inscription, the curse is the full content of the Jorkertep stone. Fortunately, insidious death and the plague of Maleficence only come into play if you break the monument. I did some research, and the only story that I can find of somebody actually trying to do just that is vague enough to sound like legend, but nonetheless is worth telling. At some point in the stone's history, a farmer was trying to clear the surrounding land so that he could do his farming shit. He piled wood around the runestone so that he could light the wood, heat the runestone, and then pour cold water onto the stone, thinking that the abrupt change in temperature would crack it into pieces for easier removal. The farmer lit the fire, but then a strange wind blew through the burial ground, simultaneously dowsing the blaze around the runestone and fanning the flames in the farmer's directions, burning him alive and or killing him. Insidious death and maleficence indeed. A handful of theories attempt to explain what this stone actually is. Besides a prompt for imaginative stories of burning death and anti-farmer rhetoric. The first is that it's a gravestone and that some proto-viking is buried beneath it. Which makes sense. It's in a burial ground after all. However, in 1914 the area around the stone was excavated and no remains were found, which seems to rule out this theory. The second theory is that it's a cenotaph, a grave marker memorializing a dead person who remains elsewhere, like lost at sea or rotting on a foreign battlefield or buried somewhere away from here. Makes sense, it's in a burial ground with no bodies underneath it. The third theory, though, is that it's a shrine dedicated to the All-Father Odin, which also makes sense. But the final theory is that it's a mere border marker between the ancient Swedes and their neighbors, the ancient Danes. I hope that one's not true, because it's kind of boring. All of these theories put the stone's curse into different contexts, depending on which is true. The runestone could be protecting the earthly remains or memory of a dead person, protecting against blasphemy against the gods, or protecting the sanctity of borders. Or the inscription could have been a common phrase, a proto-meme, perhaps. I say this because about 35 miles west of the Jarkertep ruin stone, another stone was found with almost the exact same curse on the exact same ancient language engraved on its surface. And that one's called the Stentertoften rune stone. That rune stone doesn't break any records in height, and it's more oblong in shape, but its connection to the Jarkertep rune stone is clear. It was discovered by a priest in 1823. He found it face down and surrounded by five other stones in the shape of a pentagram. An, arrange, an arrangement which might have been intended to ward off evil beings like trolls and other things. These days, the runestone can be found in Blakinge County at a church in Solvesborg, a holy house surrounding a hellish curse. There are a lot of runestones around the world in a lot of different languages, but few 
are as surly as the Jokertep runestone, which is a giant middle finger of a cursed object jutting out of the ground in the forest, which seems to be how Vikings handled their business. Interesting. Let's talk about the Tomb of Timur. Timur was the scourge of Central Asia during the late 14th century. In three and a half decades, he conquered the region, massacred entire populations, destroyed cities, and he was well known for constructing towers from the skulls of his victims. He might also have sicked Adolf Hitler on Russia 600 years later by cursing his own tomb, but we'll get to that in a minute. Timur was born around 1336 in Transaxonia, now modern-day Uzbekistan. He was the son of Targay, the leader of one of Central Asia's many tribes, and lived in a tumultuous time, with those tribes fighting and jockeying for power. Timur was particularly ambitious and bloodthirsty, and after starting his career as a mercenary soldier, he began forming alliances, finding a following, and eventually became the ultimate military force in the land. He positioned himself as a descendant of Genghis Khan and then tried to outdo the Mongol leader in sheer ruthlessness and ambition. He conquered much of the Asia continent during his time in power, starting with Transaxonia. His empire eventually extended to the Mediterranean Sea, to the Himalayas, and from the Caucasus Mountains to the Arabian Sea. In many instances, he did more than defeat his opponents, he decimated them. Some estimates put his death toll at about 19 million. That's a ton of skull towers, in case you were wondering. But he was also a patron of the arts and the sciences. He filled Samarkand, the capital of his empire, with scholars and artists and physicians and scientists from all the lands that he conquered. He also commissioned amazing feats of architecture, such as the Registrant Square. He didn't spend too much time in his capital among his beautiful buildings, though. He preferred the tent city of his army and was too busy conquering other places to dally long in his palaces. His fame spread into Europe, where he was called Tamerlane, which means Timur the Lame, due to the injuries in his right hand and leg that he sustained, sustained during his days as a soldier. In the winter of 1405, he was on his way to add China to his empire when he died en route in Kazakhstan at the age of 68. His body was brought to Samarkand and interred. The Timurid Empire would last for less than a hundred years after his death, but the man's notoriety was a vicious vanquisher was permanently marked in the history books. Except in Uzbekistan. They love him in Uzbekistan. His homeland erected multiple statues of the conqueror, some of them in god-sized dimensions, positioning him as a cultural unifier in the multifarious culture that had to remake itself after the dissolution of the USSR. They also still have his body. Timur's tomb in Samarkand is called Ger-Etmir, or the Tomb of the King. The most prominent feature of the mausoleum is its large, ribbed, sky-blue dome. On either side of that dome are massive freestanding pillars jutting into the sky like tusks. The terracotta building is covered in blue and white tiles arranged in intricate patterns and mosaics. It's simple, but it's extravagant. The first clue that Timur left behind a curse was revealed three and a half centuries later. In 1740, a warlord named Nadir Shah stole the slab of black jade that Timur had been buried under and took it back to his home in Persia. Somehow the slab broke in two, and it said that Nadir Shah suffered bad luck from that point on, until he was convinced to return the slab to Samarkand. 
Almost 200 years later, in 1924, Uzbekistan became part of the domain of the USSR. Then, on June 19, 1941, the curse story got more interesting. Soviet archaeologists became curious about the conqueror's tomb, so they exhumed Timur's body under the orders of Joseph Stalin, despite protests from the citizens of Samarkand. The team was led by anthropologist Mikhail Gersamanov and they discovered a body that was 5 feet 6 inches tall with wounds in his right hip and two fingers missing from his right hand, validating Timur's nickname as the Lame. Later, they would ship his remains to Moscow to reconstruct his facial features based on his skull, a technique that Gerasmanov pioneered. Days later, Hitler and Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Immediately, the two events were linked together, because how could they not be? The exhuming of one bloody dictator was quickly followed by the appearance of another. The two events became so intertwined that rumors began to swirl about inscriptions on the tomb and on the casket. The one on the tomb is supposed to read, When I ride from the dead, the world shall tremble. When the Soviet archaeologists ignored that warning, they allegedly found another curse etched onto Timur's casket. And that said, Whosoever opens my tomb shall unleash an invader more terrible than I. And, uh, in most people's opinion, if not all, Adolf Hitler is pretty terrible. Unfortunately, no evidence of either inscription exists. However, two years later, after the analysis was complete, the archaeologists reinterred Timur's remains. Soviet forces defeated the Nazis at Stalingrad, and it was a major turning point in World War II. Why Timur's tomb would be cursed in the first place is unknown. Maybe it was wishful thinking on the part of the people of Samarkaland who didn't want either 18th century or 20th century warlords disturbing the bones of their cultural hero. But in my opinion, there's something fitting about a warlord that was so bloodthirsty that not even death could stop his murderous rampage. In times like these, it's important to remember the good things. Sure, the economy may be a little rough, and we may be shuttering schools, hospitals, and libraries to pay union pensions, but San Andreas is still the place where dreams are made. This is where counterculture began and then morphed into a nanny state, a place that preaches environmental stewardship but has a terrible public transit system and the worst air in the world. Experience more of San Andreas, the suburban sprawl, no sense of community, and no building more than 30 years old, where fluffy children's theme park animals are both our heritage and our culture. San Andreas leads the country in removing pristine first-growth forests to build generic strip malls and tract mansions. San Andreas, we won't be broken hypocrites forever. Brought to you by the San Andreas Tourism Board. Love sports, but isn't it time to forget about friendly rivalries, tailgate parties, and marching bands? It's time America joined the rest of the world. Who's the Laker in the black? Embrace the global passion of soccer at the next Los Santos Benders home game. Let off flares, riot, and commit race crimes just like the sophisticated Europeans do. Yoshi! Feel the excitement of a Bender's home game while a normal post-game melee may result in a couple of burnt cars. A proper English riot can burn a town to shreds. It's time America finally joined in on the fun. The L.S. Benders. Season tickets only $50. Alright, let's talk about the Black Angel. It was once an eight-foot-tall, shimmering bronze memorial to a young son and a dear husband. Today, it's a blackened horror of a figure with a deathly curse. 
and you can even go say hi to it during the cemetery's open hours. Oakland Cemetery in Iowa City, Iowa was established in 1843. It covers about 40 acres, is Protestant, and is full of the usual plain rectangular tombstones and dead people. Nothing too out of the ordinary and nothing much worth mentioning as far as cemeteries go except for the giant black angel dominating the landscape and terrifying the visitors. Angel statues in cemetery are extremely common, and extremely expensive, I might add. There are millions of them, spreading their stone wings across the dead in America and Europe. So many, in fact, that the wondrous image of a person with feathery wings has become as bland a sight as a rectangular tombstone in a cemetery. But not the black angel. The black angel has transcended blandness by going full-on spooky, and being full-on spooky in a cemetery has earned it an abundance of creepy legends. It also, strangely enough, makes the statue better at memorializing the dead beneath its feet. People will forget a boring funeral statue, but they'll talk for generations about a scary one. The statue is eight and a half feet tall and stands atop a square pedestal that lifts it to a full 13 feet. It depicts a winged woman in a flowing dress, her head tilted down so that her face is usually hidden in shadow. Her massive wings are at odd, asymmetrical angles, one extended out perpendicular to her body and the other one drooping like it's been broken. Her arms are aligned with her wings, giving the strange impression that she's wearing fake wings strapped to her arms. There's something rounded and clay-like about her features. She looks like she belongs in a fantasy cemetery in a Tim Burton movie instead of a real death cemetery in Iowa. The bronze artwork was crafted by a man named Mario Corbell, a Czech sculptor based out of Chicago. When it was placed at the cemetery in the early 1910s, it shone golden and glorious. Rodina Feldervorta is inscribed at the foot of the stone pedestal, which means the Feldervert family in Czech. It is accompanied by a tall stone carved into the shape of a tree trunk. This Iowa plot is the lasting work of Teresa Feldevert, a Czech midwife. The stone tree came first and was planted to memorialize her son from her first marriage. His name was Edward Dolezal. Interesting, Dolezal is a Czech last name. Who would have known? Fans of the modern political, <laughs> the modern political arena will know what I'm making a joke about. He died at age 18 after contracting meningitis. It was the second son that she had lost. The first, named Otto, died two weeks before she moved to the United States. Now childless and husbandless, Teresa left Iowa City and lived in a few different places before ending up in Eugene, Oregon, where she met Nicholas Feldevert, whom she eventually married. He preceded her in death and left her somewhat wealthy. One of the first things she did with that money was commission the angel sculpture. She ended up fighting with the sculptor Corbell because she wanted the tree trunk gravestone to be incorporated into the sculpture of an angel. But in the end, they were kept separate. Regardless, the angel became the repository of the remains of both her son Edward and her husband. Finally, in 1924, Teresa herself was laid to rest beneath the angel that she had commissioned, although the memorial bears only her birth date. It's a beautiful story, really, each family member succumbing to the inevitable and then be, being reunited beneath a shining statue for all to see. But then, the angel aged, and the red-gold bronze oxidized to a deep black, as if dark forces had tainted it, or corrupted it, cursed it. Normally, we would just call those forces time and weather, but in this case, because of the, 
the stature of the statue and the strange angle of its wings and the fact that it doesn't fit in with the rest of the cemetery, the change in color seemed somewhat malevolent. Some say it was the addition of Teresa's ashes that cursed the statue, that she had cheated on her husband, that the glowing angel looming above the ostensibly loving family could no longer take part in the ruse. However, the angel started turning black within ten years of being installed while Teresa was still alive. The Black Angel has accrued as many stories as there are paranormal books and websites. The most common story is that if you touch the statue, you'll die. And for whatever reason, it reason touching it is often specifically called out as kissing it. Also, if a pregnant woman crosses the statue of the Black Angel, the woman will miscarry. It's a common enough legend that pregnant women in general might want to avoid the rot yard. A man is said to have gone mad after breaking off one of the statue's thumbs, and in fact she is missing a few digits. Another myth is that if a virgin is kissed in front of the statue, it will restore the black angel to her previous glowing form. Although we can probably guess why and where that legend started. It's also said that every Halloween the statue grows darker. It's a popular spook spot for thrill-seekers and paranormal investigators, a rite of passage for students, and according to some locals, an icon of the city. What it is more than anything can be found in the last two lines of the epitaph on the stone tree trunk besides the Black Angel. Do not weep for me, dear mother. I am at peace in my cool grave. And the Black Angel is definitely a cool grave. Now let's talk about the gravestone of Carl Pruitt. The southeastern edge of Pulaski County, Kentucky is filled with strip mines. These patches of denuded earth can be landscape eyesores, environmentally dodgy, much-needed sources of jobs, and rich pockets of economically important resources depending on where you fall in the argument. But one of these myriad strip mines is a little different from the others. It generates a different kind of argument. It may or may not have saved humanity from a cursed object. A lot of cursed objects are supposed to be deadly, but the gravestone of Carl Pruitt is all absolutely bloodthirsty. According to the lore, it has caused the deaths of five different people, each of them strangled by chains. The story goes like this. The year is 1938. Carl Pruitt returns home, his fingers full of splinters and his lungs full of sawdust from his job as a carpenter. He's early, and he's looking forward to seeing his wife, which he does naked, and in bed with another man. As you might expect, Pruitt flies into a rage and attacks his wife while the naked man takes an awkward post-coital flight out of the nearest window. Pruitt grabbed a nearby length of chain and wraps it around his wife's throat, strangling her until she's dead. Immediately, the grief and the shame and the irrevocability of his act sink in, so he grabs a gun and shoots himself in the face. It's a terrible, although not outlandish, story but what happens next takes it over the top. Pruitt's body was buried in a nearby cemetery. Legend says that over time, a section of the headstone that marked his grave discolored, developing a chain-shaped stain across its face. Locals became fixated on the story of the murder-suicide and the stained stone. And it's the headstone that distinguishes this story from your average graveyard haunting. Sometime after the gravestone was planted, a group of boys biked onto the site. One boy, James Collins, pelted it with rocks. The projectiles chipped and cracked the block of granite. When they got bored, the gang took off towards home. But James Collins immediately lost control of his bicycle and hit the tree. 
When the boys checked to see if, his, if he was okay, they found him dead, but not from a head wound. In the collision, his bike chain had somehow wrapped itself around his neck and strangled him to death. The next day, the pock marks from Collins' stone projectiles were gone. The gravestone was marred only by the chain train, with a chain stain. Weeks later, Collins' mother flew into a rage of grief and took off to the cemetery with a pickaxe in her hand. She demolished Pruitt's stone and then went home to do the laundry. As she was hanging sheets on the line to dry, a line that for some reason was actually a chain, it wrapped itself around her neck and strangled her to death. When locals went to see the damage that had been her doing and undoing, they found Carl Pruitt's gravestone in one piece and as shiny as new, with the exception of the chain-shaped stain. The story of the supernatural stone spread, and eventually somebody else decided to test the curse. A farmer driving by the cemetery in a horse-drawn cart shot at the headstone with his gun. His horses took off running, pitching the farmer forward and over the cart, where he died with a trace chain of the harness wrapped around his throat. And Carl Pruitt's gravestone was undamaged. At one point, a pair of police officers went to investigate what was becoming a big story in those parts. One of the men made fun of the stone and of the story. Upon leaving the cemetery, they were chased by a light that panicked the doubting officer who was driving the squad car. He swerved between two posts and he crashed. The officer in the passenger seat was thrown clear and lived. The driver was found dead, strangled by a chain that connected the two posts. The final death that's told around campfires in southeastern Kentucky involved a man who became so fed up with the cursed object that he took a hammer and a chisel to it. His blows rang out through the night until they ended with a loud scream. Locals found him dead, with the chain from the graveyard gate wrapped around his neck. The hammer and the chisel were both there, but no chisel marks could be found on Carl Pruitt's grave. That was one chain strangling too many. Locals started selling their cemetery plots and exhuming their loved ones to move their bodies out of the graveyard and away from the cursed stone. Eventually, the cemetery was reduced to a single plot, topped by one chain-stained gravestone, and that gravestone might have kept on killing had the land not been sold to a mining company and the entire area turned into a strip mine in 1958. It's assumed that the stone ended up with the rest of the rubble from the mine, buried and waiting for some future archaeologist to find it and unchain the curse all over again. A single black and white photo is always tied to this story. It shows a man in overalls and a large newsboy hat leaning against the back of an old car. Nobody knows whether it's a photo of Carl Pruitt or how exactly it became attached to the story. The earliest source of the tale seems to be the late Michael Paul Henson's More Kentucky Ghost Stories, which was published in 1996. Researchers have tried to locate Pruitt's death certificate without much success, but they have found a death record in Louisville, Kentucky from 1950 for an Enos C. Pruitt, who died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. All that aside, we're left with a solid moral, and that is, don't disrespect the gravestone of angry killers. The video game of the year. My name is Vladisaki Abdulchinkov. A combination of all the hate. I am half Russian, half Asian, half Muslim. I will defeat the Americans. A first-person shooter with a story like no other. But Commander, they will be sending the Bravo Sierra International Elite Special Forces Ranger Squad after you. 
<laughs> they will never catch me. The only way into my hideout is by those planes that got stolen somewhere in the absurdly exotic last country. What's that noise? And why aren't we speaking Russian? Whiskey Sour Poontang, you are clear to fire. Righteous Slaughter 7, the innovative art of contemporary killing. How do you kill? Rated PG. Pretty much the same as the last game. Sure, you work at an office. Sure, you do Pilates. Yes, your wife earns more money than you do. But don't let anyone tell you you're not a man. Let them know you're a tool. You tool. The do-it-yourself mega hardware store for guys just like you. Real tools. Guys who don't need to hire a plumber or electrician. Guys who do it themselves. Tools. Blue-collar guys aren't geniuses, and neither are you. Demonstrate this to your wife once and for all at U-Tool. Buy a circular saw. Any guy can use one of them. Wiring is for ninnies. Wire like the pros and make your house a safe place you can be proud of. Show that wife who's boss. The guy with a belt full of gear and the house under control. Show your wife who the family tool is. U-Tool, the mega hardware superstore. Let's talk about the bronze lady. The old Dutch church burying ground and its neighbor Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Sleepy Hollow, New York, are famous for their connections to Washington Irving and his 1820 story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But there is another dark force besides the Headless Horseman at work amongst these graves. She's called the Bronze Lady. Washington Irving buried his fictional horseman in the old Dutch church burying ground, and in the story, it is from there that the dark rider gallops forth to claim the heads of nervous school teachers. The old Dutch church itself rises above the gravestones on the far side of the bridge that is the finish line for anyone being chased by the headless fiend. Meanwhile, Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, which is newer and shares a border with the old cemetery, became the final resting place of Washington Irving following his death in 1859. The old Dutch burying grounds occupies two and a half acres directly behind the church. It was founded around 1685. Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, however, is much larger. It's about 90 acres and opened in 1849. Besides Washington Irving... Members of such wealthy New York families, such as the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Chryslers, and Astros, also, they also uh, lie in repose here. Irving was instrumental in the newer cemetery's development, as well as its name. The village where it's located was then known as North Terrytown, and the town's leaders originally proposed to name the burial ground Terrytown Cemetery. Irving successfully pressured them to dismiss their first choice for the preferred Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. A century and a half later, in 1997, the name of the village was also changed to Sleepy Hollow to capitalize on the famous spooky story set there. As I said before, there's another spooky story set here other than the Headless Horseman. The Bronze Lady of Sleepy Hollow Cemetery has had to live in the shadow of the Headless Horseman even though she is real. The Bronze Lady is a larger-than-life statue of a woman, seated with her eyes closed and her two hands clasping one of her knees. A shroud covers her hair, and flowing robes cover her body. Unlike most graveyard statues, time and elements haven't conspired to make her especially creepy. She looks exactly like what she is, a large, dark statue of a woman. 
She's squeezed in between two pine trees and faces a large square mausoleum, which houses the tomb of General Samuel Russell Thomas. Thomas earned his stars during the Civil War, ascending the ranks of the Union from second lieutenant to brigadier general. After the war, he ascended the tax bracket with the same gusto, making it big in the pig iron, coal, and railroad industries. Big enough for his corpse to be marked with both a large mausoleum and a statue. Even though the statue and mausoleum are part of the same memorial, the way they are situated is unusual, and that arrangement may be the inspiration for the curse. The female form faces the mausoleum as if she's not there to be looked at but to look, almost like she's guarding it, or waiting for someone to walk through the green bronze doors. The effect is unintentionally eerie. It's so eerie, in fact, that many locals have grown up swapping stories about how the statue was cursed. Tales are told of crying sounds coming from the bronze lady. Some claim to have felt actual tears on her cheeks. Kids sneak out there at Halloween and dare each other to touch the statue. If you peek through the keyhole of the mausoleum or knock on its metal doors, it's said that you'll have nightmares. If you treat the statue with violence, say kick her shins or slap her in the face or spit on her, she will haunt you for the rest of your life. In one story, if you peek through the keyhole after abusing the statue, you'll see a red eye staring back at you. Another claims that to break the curse, you need to slap the statue again and then knock three times on the mausoleum door. Strangely, there is a positive legend of the statue as well. If you're nice to her, she will protect you for the rest of your life. And evidently, many people hold to this superstition. This superstition. Cemetery staff often find coins laid in her lap. Please take care of me. Here's a dollar. Ugh. The sculpture was created by Andrew O'Connor Jr. at the behest of the general's widow, Anne Augusta Porter Thomas, after her husband's death on January 4, 1903. The statue's name comes from the French word meaning contemplation. The model for the sculpture was Jess Phoebe Brown, one of O'Connor's favorite models. According to the 1995 book The Sculptor's O'Connor by Doris Sot Soderman, where Mrs. Thomas visited O'Connor's art studio to check on the statue she had commissioned, she didn't like the way that it looked. She had wanted the statue to appear happier, maybe more hopeful about the family's post-death prospects. O'Connor dutifully asked his client to give him another week to address her feedback. When Mrs. Thomas returned, he showed her a new cast of the head bearing a much happier expression. Mrs. Thomas declared it perfect, at which point O'Connor dashed the head to the floor, smashing it to pieces, and said, I just made this to show you that I could do it, but I should never let such a monstrosity out of my studio. Ha! I like this guy. Inside the mausoleum, only two crypts are marked with names, Samuel Russell Thomas and his son Edward. Mrs. Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't interred there. As for Edward, even though his name appears on the crypt, the cemetery has no record of anybody being interred there. Maybe if O'Connor had listened to Mrs. Thomas, his work of art wouldn't be cursed today. But then again, maybe that was inevitable. In The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Washington Irving characterized the people of the valley this way. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. With that being said, it's easy to imagine that the people of Sleepy Hollow conjured up the curse as some sort of a figment of their imagination.
Hmm. On the subject of fabricating curses, let's talk about Shakespeare's grave. William Shakespeare knew how to sling a curse. Some form of that word appears 197 times in his 40 or so plays. At least if I'm using the open source Shakespeare correctly. But we don't need to scour the collected dramatic works of the man whose pen evolved the English language beyond grunts and sniffs to know how good the playwright was with the curse. We just have to go check out his grave. William Shakespeare was born in 1564 in the English town of Stratford-upon-Avon, northwest of London, to a glove-maker father and a farmer mother. He married, and I'm not kidding here, Anne Hathaway at the age of 18 and had three children with her. He moved to London and found success as an actor, a playwright, and a partner in a theater company. When he was 49, he returned to his hometown, where he died three years later. Meanwhile, he completely transformed the English language and, is, and fully stocked our common pool of metaphors. Besides a handful of biographical facts in his life's work of plays and poetry, little is actually known about William Shakespeare. Even the circumstances and causes of his death in 1616 are seemingly lost to history. But we do know that his grave is cursed. It says so right on the stone slab. But before we get to his grave, let's talk about another curse Shakespeare is known for, and that is Macbeth. His play about a Scottish general's murderous rise to the Scottish throne is one of his most popular plays. However, actors who perform it refuse to say the title of the play inside of a theater for fear of bringing bad luck to themselves and to the production. As a result, they often refer to Macbeth as the Scottish play or as the Bard's play. The exception to the curse is if the actor says the word while rehearsing for or performing the play. The story goes that a coven of witches were angered that Shakespeare included witches and incantations in the play, and so they placed a curse on it. According to the Royal Shakespeare Company website, if the name of the play that must not be named does slip through an actor's lips, the way to defeat the curse is to leave the theater, spin around three times, spit, curse, and then knock at the door on the theater to regain entrance. But that's just a curse for actors to worry about. Shakespeare's other curses can impact anyone who visits his grave. Because even though he's called the Immortal Bard, Shakespeare went to dirt just like the rest of us. And that dirt can be found under a church in Stratford-upon-Avon. Holy Trinity Church is both the site of Shakespeare's baptism as a child and his burial at the end of his life. Historians also like to assign both his birthday and death day as April 23rd giving a nice symmetry to his life. The church building dates to the 13th century. It's located on the banks of the river Avon, on an atmospheric piece of land punctuated by ancient gravestones. However, Shakespeare isn't buried in the graveyard. He's inside the church, interred with his wife and eldest daughter, Susanna, in the floor of the channel where the altar is located. A nearby monument depicts the bard from the waist up with a quill and parchment in his hand, and is topped by a pair of cherubs and a frightening-looking skull. The grave is a simple slab of stone in the floor. His name isn't even engraved on it. Where another stone might feature the familiar Here Lies refrain are the lines of a curse that can barely be made out in the old rock, but which are transcribed on a helpful plaque atop the grave. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be the man that moves my bones. 
The story goes that Shakespeare himself composed this funerary verse, and for reasons that weren't poetic but practical. At the time of his death, bodies were often exhumed for medical research to make room for newly dead bodies, or even so, their treasure could be grave robbed. In Shakespeare's case, there was also the risk of fans wanting to take souvenirs. Writing the verse was Shakespeare's way of guaranteeing he could spend eternity with a Do Not Disturb sign dangling from his door handle. And the people of England take the curse seriously. In 2008, the burial sign and other stone surfaces in the church needed to be restored, having begun to crumble with age and use. The team that was overseeing the project had to assure the people of England that they wouldn't disturb the bones of Shakespeare and that they were taking all precautions to minimize disruption to the grave. But the thing is, Shakespeare's bones might have already been disturbed centuries ago. It has long been rumored that his skull is no longer rotting there with the rest of him, that at some point it went missing from the grave. Of course, this seems like an obvious rumor to spread about the author of the incredible scene in Hamlet in which the Danish prince talks to the skull of his friend. But uh, in 2016, a team of researchers used the ground-penetrating radar, the type that wouldn't disturb Shakespeare's bones or activate a curse, to see if they could find either evidence of the skull or lack thereof. What they found were possible signs of a past disturbance of the area of the grave where the skull would be. Interesting, but inconclusive. So until somebody ignores the curse completely and roots around Shakespeare's remains for definitive answers, the question of his skull will remain a mystery. Unless, that is, there's another option. A, prof a professor named Francis Thackeray from the University of Witwatersand in Johannesburg has an idea. In a 2015 interview with The Telegraph, he posited a way to reach Shakespeare's skull while avoiding the curse. He said we could possibly get around that by at least exposing the bones and doing high-resolution, non-destructive laser surface scanning for forensic analysis without moving a single bone. Besides, Shakespeare said nothing about teeth in that epitaph. Hopefully, Shakespeare's curse is forgiving when it comes to technicalities. Men, face it. The male menopause is real. You're going to lose your virility someday. How about now? In the time it has taken to listen to this commercial, you're less virile than you were at the start. You've just wasted a whole lot of sperm. The decline has begun. It is time to fight back. As you start to go gray, get saggy, you're being upstaged by young bucks who will seduce your women and take your fortune. They need to know you're still the alpha. They need to know you're top dog and they're still a little pup. However, staying on top isn't just about jacking yourself with testosterone until you're humping the furniture. You'll need to go big. Showtime, who's boss? Do something really impressive and tell everyone about it. Hike Kilimanjaro, dog sled across side Siberia, trek across Antarctica, raft the Amazon. You need an adventure travel service that can take you to the far reaches of the earth and give you the kind of experience you can boast about back home. Show them what kind of man you really are. A man who is fighting for meaning the only way he knows how, by showing off. It's time to take the menopause by the throat and strangle the life out of it. Contact Manipause Adventures today or visit menopauseadventures.com. 
It's time to take your weight problem seriously. It's time to stop pussyfooting around with so-called lifestyle changes. It's time for surgery today. Don't wait a minute. Don't try other methods. Try the gastro band. Don't for one second think you can do it on your own. We both know you can't. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten into this mess. Get real about your weight problems and your complete lack of willpower. Give in. Get surgery. Get out. It's the world we live in. Slice and dice your problems away. Then you can look like other people. Have the gastro band inserted today and watch your weight and problems melt away. Finally, you can be happy like normal people. It's time to put down the knife and fork and go under the knife and scalpel. Give up and get thin. Gastro band surgery. Remember, surgery solves everything. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning back in to another episode of the Halloween Special Edition of the Anthology of Horror Podcast. As always, I am your host and narrator, spring Jack. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so by going to Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Go ahead and send me a DM and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I appreciate you guys taking the time to reach out to me and it may take a while for me to respond, but I'll get back to you eventually, most likely. Also, can you please take the time to rate the show on the iTunes Store or Spotify? Wherever you listen to the show, please go ahead and give it five stars because it really helps with the algorithm. I would greatly appreciate it. It doesn't cost any money, just takes a little bit of time. Alright guys, thank you very much for tuning back in and be sure to check back tomorrow for another episode. And until next time, stay spooky.